Welcome to the Scott Thompson Home Show podcast. Coming up, do we need provincial vaccine passports? How much pressure is there to open the Canada-U.S. border? Sexual misconduct claims in the military are up 170%. It's all coming up. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. All right, do you think? I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Summer's here, school's out, and I'm fully vaccinated. Time to swing from my mask. Well, what does that even mean? I don't know. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show here. Scott Thompson! <laughs> what is that all about? Uh, good afternoon. It is 12-11. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Willers can back at the station keeping the Scott Thompson home show between the pipes. Jump into the fun. We would love to hear from you. Uh, starts on the website. Send us a note. Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. All right. Um, provincial passports, vaccine passports. That has been the chatter as we uh, more and more Ontarians and Canadians are uh, getting vaccinated, which is a great sign. Uh, do we need these? Do And is what we have from wherever we got vaccinated sufficient enough uh, to get us through, uh, you know, certainly on a, and this is on a provincial level. This isn't on, uh, a federal level in any way. This is just to get between, uh, provinces, uh, to talk more about all of this, uh, or before we get to our guest, rather, uh, here's a couple of clips from Solicitor General Sylvia Jones when she was asked yesterday about vaccine passports, uh, in Ontario. We very much believe that the federal government has responsibility for a vaccine passport. Uh, there's no doubt that there are some countries that are already uh, suggesting that in order to travel uh, to their um, countries that you will need proof of vaccine. So we believe that is the responsibility of the federal government. Having said that, in Ontario, of course, we do have the COVAX-based system that tracks and ensures that everyone who has received a vaccine in the province, whether they received it in Ontario or actually had it somewhere else, can register that vaccine. And we encourage people to do that because we want to make sure that everyone who qualifies and wants a, a vaccine receives it. Once you are vaccinated, you do get a proof of vaccination. Uh, you're registered into COVAX and depending on whether you went through your primary care, your pharmacy or a health unit, you do get that piece of paper that shows you have been vaccinated and with which vaccine you used. But we do not envision in Ontario where we need an Ontario-based vaccine passport. That is the responsibility of the federal government as people uh, move across borders and as countries uh, demand proof of vaccination, then it will be up to the federal government to do that. All right, uh, that is uh, the Solicitor General, Sylvia Jones, talking about provincial passports. I'm, I'm not sure why we need provincial passports if we have or are getting or are debating uh, federal passports. You can certainly see how it is needed or maybe needed in that scenario, obviously, uh, because as the uh, Solicitor General mentioned, you're going between borders between countries, and and, and that's virtually all over the world. Uh, let's bring in Justin Bates, CEO of the Ontario Pharmacists Association, and is with us now. Justin, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. I'm well, thanks, and thanks for having me on. Uh, Justin, just give us a little bit of an update on where we are. We haven't chatted in a while as far as, uh, obviously, uh, vaccine um, uh, distribution is, is going gangbusters now. Any reports from your uh, pharmacy association? How are things going at the ground level? It seems that uh, this is moving quite smoothly. Well, certainly when you look at the numbers of people that have had a first dose and those that have a second dose, the numbers are looking very good. Um, and that's promising for keeping people safe and out of hospitals. And all of our COVID numbers uh, are also in the positive trend uh, direction. Uh, we are struggling a little bit with the continuation of the hesitancy around Moderna. So there is uh, an oversupply right now of Moderna out uh, in public health units, primary care and pharmacy, because people are still displaying a preference for Pfizer, largely due to brand awareness and some of the mixed messaging uh, or botched messaging that we've seen from the World Health Organization and other domestic regulatory bodies. So I think that has contributed to some of it. Um, but overall, yeah, we're definitely now focused on the vaccine hesitancy cohort of people that's going to likely represent around 20% of the population. And what do we need to do to 
bring our numbers up to 90% uh, or greater. What do you think, uh, just, and, you know, obviously you don't have a crystal ball, but where do you think we're going to end up here, Justin, with the amount of people uh, vaccinated? As you said, uh, you know, up in the high 70s for the first dose um, and certainly over 50% now with the second dose. We could just assume if you're going to get the first, hopefully you'll get the second. Where do you see this all settling? Well, our hope would be well in excess of 85% um, and to get close to the 90% uh, fully vaccinated people across the country. And I think that that will be achievable if we continue to focus on access, convenience and education. I think that last part around education is really uh, targeting those that aren't necessarily anti-vaxxers who are very much ingrained in their position, but those that are sitting on the fence, the, the people we call vaccine hesitant, that may be waiting and seeing how the vaccine program rolls out. Um, listening to all of the messaging coming out from a variety of medical public health experts. Uh, and I think with the right information and having that trusted relationship with their physician or pharmacist, um, they can be convinced that this is the right thing to do and it's safe and effective. And we're already seeing that. We're seeing our ability to convert people, if you will, um, who are unsure to decide after that conversation with their healthcare provider to actually get vaccinated. So, I think it's achievable. Things like vaccine passport can actually hinder uh, that effort and, and create more vaccine hesitancy, particularly with marginalized and racialized communities who perhaps are more skeptical about the vaccine, uh, have lack of trust. Uh, they feel in some cases this is more like coercion uh, rather than nudging in education. Uh, and that can have some backlash in, in those communities. I remember when I got uh, both my first and second dose at my local pharmacy, they gave me a piece of paper. There's also a code on that. The first thing I did was take a picture of it so it was inside my phone so I wouldn't have to carry a piece of paper around with me. Uh, what is what is the purpose of that code? And I forget the name of it. It escapes me right now. And, and, and what is that piece of paper that, you, that the pharmacies are giving us? Mm-hmm. So you would have gotten the same no matter where in Ontario you received your first and second dose. You'll get an email uh, confirmation. And it's really a, a proof of that vaccination, a receipt, if you will. Uh, and you also, in many cases, get the printout. Um, and people can actually log in to COVAX. There is a uh, government site you can go in and uh, be able to view that record and print it. So even if for whatever reason you lost it or you didn't receive it, um, it is accessible through the, the website. And the purpose of that is essentially to demonstrate that you are vaccinated and to be able to use that as an immunization record, which I think that language and positioning suggests very different things than the word passport. And, and perhaps we need to mm. you know, reshape the, the, the narrative around this, because this is not dissimilar to children going to school needing an immunization record, those yellow cards that is proof of vaccination to go to school. And we're starting to get into this dilemma now of whether or not businesses have the right to refuse service to patrons, whether or not healthcare workers should be mandated to be vaccinated to keep people safe. Um, and you get into not only the civil liberties component, but even the etiquette of asking somebody whether they've been vaccinated or not. And I think we're working through that. We're trying to understand from a travel perspective domestically, what is a universally accepted immunization record? Because it's different by province of what people would have received and is there a standard that can be applied and then of course internationally we would want some form of acceptance of the various vaccines so what would be deemed being fully vaccinated might be different in certain countries and some like a passport some universal way to demonstrate that and I think we also need to think about those that may not have electronic access we need to think about the paper and maybe like a card or a smart card type of scenario so that it's not just limited to mobile or electronic means. So uh, considering when we are vaccinated, we get that record of vaccination. And, and I think this is a different debate at the federal level than it is the provincial level. I can cer certainly see, as you've mentioned, with different countries, different scenarios, what have you, that there may need to be some sort of federal verification. But does it seem necessary to have passports within like province to province? I personally don't see the applicability of uh, having more than what we already have in terms of we do have a record um, and that record can be used to for whatever means, whether it's entry into a venue within the province uh, or a particular business to demonstrate that we're fully vaccinated 
or if I'm traveling from, say, Ontario to BC, that should suffice. Um, I think the conversations is more around having it accessible uh, electronically across uh, all provinces, because right now it's very much in a silo. Each province will have its own system of record-keeping. It's not necessarily accessible by a province like a, a passport would be. Um, or even some, I guess it's akin to a driver's license, right? Um, each each province has a different um, criteria, card, and so forth. So I, I don't know necessarily that we need to reinvent that, but having a standard immunization record that's not just for COVID, but adds in other immunizations, yeah. I think does make sense, um, rather than having all these different uh, areas where we have to show proof of vaccination. Yeah, I understand what you're saying, Justin, especially at the federal level where, uh, you know, and not only with COVID vaccination, but any vaccination that you may need to get into into uh, any of these countries. That seems like, uh, you know, if you're going to go that route, that would be the most logical uh, way to go, because then that federal card would obviously work between provinces. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's what the Solicitor General was alluding to, and that, you know, this would be more of a coordinated effort pan-Canadian led by the federal government to have that universally accepted um, record. However, they want to make that accessible, whether it's through an electronic means and uh, or a card. Uh, that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, now, we obviously have to be worried about fraud and people with fake yeah. um, receipts and things of that nature. But you're already starting to see the controversies with gyms reopening, even strip clubs now requiring their uh, personnel as well as um, patrons to have proof of vaccinations how do you validate that um needs to be some standard i think to uh, ensure the consistency and validity of the of the record um and you know with those places where consumers are going to start making decisions whether they access these services based on the policies of the individual business um you know some may not feel comfortable for going to a place where they don't require their staff to be fully vaccinated and you get into all of these uh, areas where it creates some dilemma. Um, but I do think the market will dictate a lot of that on the private business side. In the past, Justin, no one probably really cared if you or I or anyone else was vaccinated. Uh, we just went around our, our business and we got vaccinated ourselves, if that's what we uh, thought the right thing to do is. And of course it is. Um uh, why do we care so much about it this time? I- is this changing the way we look at this sort of thing? I think it is. I think because we've been through the lockdowns and we've seen the devastation that this uh, virus has caused with over 4 million deaths globally uh, and, and the interruptions to everyone's lives, I think people are viewing it differently. It is raising a lot of concerns and questions about vaccinations in general. Um, we had, for a period of time, a pretty significant anti-vaccination campaign by, um, you know, I'll say some extremists um, who have spread misinformation about any vaccinations. And they're still there, certainly, uh, out uh, in social media and other circles. But I do think the tide is turning. I think people realize that these vaccines are safe and effective. And it's important, not just to protect ourselves, but as people as part of a broader society to help uh, protect public health. Otherwise, you retract back to lockdowns and you know a situation that will be much worse so uh, we hope that that narrative has supported getting vaccinated the question is what's the etiquette of asking people uh, and restricting people from services and entry into places and is that even legal and i think those are the uh, things that we're working through now i know you're head of the ontario pharmacists association but your opinion on borders too early gotta wait what do you think well, I think the border should be open. Um, you know, I was just actually going through the process to see if we could access uh, the Blue Jays uh, in the weekend mm-hmm. series uh, in Buffalo and realizing that the border is still closed for non-essential travel. Um, and I think it makes sense to be able to offer people, these are the things you can do now that you're fully vaccinated. And whether it's essential or non-essential travel, if we have proof that we've been fully vaccinated, if we have to test before and after with a rapid antigen test, I think people would accept that. But to keep borders closed and not have protocols in place and clear guidance on what you can and can't do being fully vaccinated, I think we're doing a disservice to the economy and also for the freedom of flow of people. Justin Bates with a CEO of the Ontario Pharmacist Association talking about vaccine passports, both federal and provincial. Justin, thanks for the time. Be well.
You too. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. We're doing better than just about any other country on vaccination levels and it's just wonderful to see and keep making sure that everyone lines up to get those second, uh, second vaccine appointments. But we still have to be careful. We've seen places have to roll back into restrictions. And as eager as people are to open up, I know nobody wants to have to go backwards. As we have been every step of the way, we are going to be cautious, and responsible and take things step by step. We need to make sure that all the sacrifices Canadians have taken over the past many years, uh, many, many months, year and a half, aren't in vain as we get so close to the finish line. Yes, we will be making announcements about the next uh, phases and next steps of reopening. Right now, uh, we've seen a success where Canadians are able to come back to Canada if they're fully vaccinated and not have to quarantine. And that's gone extremely well. So we're going to look at those next steps and we will make those announcements uh, in due course in a responsible way, but every step of the way, keeping the safety and security of Canadians first. That is the Prime Minister talking about um, you opening or reopening the U.S.-Canadian border. 12.34, I'm Scott Thompson. It is the Scott Thompson Home Show. Will Erskine back at the station keeping us on the air. Facebook and Twitter, you'll find the podcast edition of the commentary waiting for you there. And you can send us a note via the website, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. All right, the majority of Canadians, and this is due uh, as the result of an Angus Reid Institute poll, a majority of Canadians say at least 75% should be fully vaccinated at home before the borders reopen. I think we're sitting at just over 50% of that now uh, and 75 plus 75 percent plus in uh, getting the first dose uh, now it's got to the point where there is a lot of pressure especially as here it is July 15th uh, mounting to get the uh, borders open j- just for anything uh, the tourism industry along uh, the borders and the cities that uh, that line it to talk more about all of this let's bring in Reggie Giacchini Washington correspondent for global news he's with us now Reggie thanks for the time hope you're well Good afternoon. How much of a story is this in the United States regarding opening up the U.S.-Canadian border? I mean, look, it's a conversation that takes place uh, within the northern border states. It's a conversation that is taking place within the northern border caucus, uh, which is a bipartisan group of lawmakers. But really, uh, it is kind of fallen by the wayside, given the fact that uh, there are ongoing conversations about the Biden administration trying to deal uh, with vaccinations, trying to deal uh, with uh, infrastructure bills in the United States. This is not the priority for the multitude of Americans, as it so much is for Canadians, given just how many Canadians live along the border. You were talking about President Biden and his effort to uh, to get Americans vaccinated. We certainly know uh, coming out of the box that uh, America was going gangbusters at this. And then uh, support obviously has waned a bit and, and leveled out. Uh, President Biden was hoping to get, uh, I think it was 70 percent by July 4th uh, vaccinated. I may be wrong on those dates. But what is his thoughts of where uh, the country is right now as far as vaccination? Yeah, you're right. He was trying to uh, to have 70% uh, of people over the age of 18 uh, with at least one shot by July 4th. And he came out a couple of days before that admitting that he wasn't going to make that target, that they kind of had to skew what the age range was and say, well, it will be people likely over the age of 27 that are going to have their first shot and admitting that it will take uh, you know, a few more weeks still trying to get to that point. Uh, and, and this is problematic not only for the Biden administration, but really for healthcare systems uh, across the United States, because you're right. The U.S. went gangbusters for vaccines when they first came out, but they really have run up against a wall now. Uh, and that wall is filled with either hesitancy about the science or simple resistance uh, because politics has played so heavily into this pandemic from the very beginning. Uh, and here we are now with conversations about how to try to reopen the border, how to try to avoid going backwards uh, into any kind of mandates across the United States as vaccination rates slow down and the number of new cases linked to the Delta variant start to uh, dramatically skyrocket. Uh, let's let's elaborate on that. How concerned, how much in the news is COVID-19? Because it seemed for a while, for a few weeks there, if, if uh, Americans were uh, opening the doors, things were over, things were back to normal. Now, obviously, uh, we're hearing of numbers starting to rise. How much is that a concern there? 
It's a huge concern, uh, and and it is uh, continuing to kind of be at the top of each newscast. It's still uh, making its way into the front page of a lot of papers, and it is because it is still a real threat. The threat never really diminished. There was always going to be a fear that something could happen. That fear is just coming a lot quicker, and that fear is also now more real, given the fact that across the United States there are some schools that head back within the next two weeks. And because there is this back and forth over masking in schools and it's uh, not a federal mandate and it's up to local municipalities uh, as to how they go forward with that, kids might not be wearing masks in school. There is a fear here that the numbers are going to continue to go up. Look, there are five states right now that are really driving the majority of cases in the United States. uh, And a lot of those people are under the age of 40. The vast majority of them are unvaccinated. And doctors that I spoke with just yesterday fear uh, that this is going to not just put children at risk, but it could start putting people who have been vaccinated at risk if these variants continue to swim around uh, and potentially undo the success of the vaccine program. This is a real threat in this country right now. It is weighing heavily on hospitals and it is weighing heavily on the government. Is this a left or right issue uh, down there, Reggie? Uh, or is are you going to find hesitancy in all corners? I mean, I, I think it likes to be painted as, as a right-wing issue, and perhaps it is down there. But up here, man, we're seeing it on, on all sides of the political spectrum. Look, it, the, the right side of, of the spectrum down here has really pushed back on uh, on this virus from the beginning, whether or not it had to do with how President Trump at the time downplayed the situation uh, or how President Trump and Republicans pushed back on mandates on how to slow the spread of the virus to how politics kind of played into the vaccines and this push that the government shouldn't be mandating people to get vaccines and it should be up to the individual. Uh, politics is playing a huge role uh, here, uh, and that hesitancy and the resistance is ultimately landing the people who aren't vaccinated in trouble. Like I said, the vast majority of people who are in hospitals right now are people that have chosen to not be vaccinated. Uh, And while I said five states are driving the number of cases in this country, 46 of the 50 states over the last week have seen their case numbers increase by at least 10%. In Louisiana, in Florida, in parts of Missouri, those case numbers are up by more than 250% over the last two weeks. This is a problem particularly in Republican states. Have Republican leaders got vaccinated? Are they telling anybody? Well, did President Trump did get vaccinated, did he not? He did get vaccinated. He was kind of cagey about the details of it and didn't tell anybody uh, when he was still in office that it happened. Uh, but what's interesting here is some Republican leaders are pleading with uh, people within the party uh, and within the base to go out and get a shot. Someone like uh, uh, Mitch McConnell, though the Senate minority leader, uh, has numerous times come out uh, in front of the cameras uh, to say to people, getting the shot is going to be beneficial. It is going to save lives. So it is not all members of the Republican Party. You have these factions of the Republican Party, say the Marjorie Taylor Greens of the GOP, that are really trying to push this as an individual right, kind of bypassing the, the thought process here that, well, it might be an individual right. There is a collective sum to uh, everybody ensuring that they're protected. If Donald Trump still has so much power down there, Reggie, why is that not is this not used as a, an effort to increase interest in vaccination? Donald Trump got one. Enough said. Yeah, I mean, look, there's self-interest here uh, when it comes to how Donald Trump looks at this uh, looks at this pandemic. Number one. Uh, He, over the last couple of weeks, has been putting out statement after statement trying to say, look, we have these vaccines right now. They're so important. They're wonderful. Don't forget, I'm the one who put Operation Warp Speed in place, and I'm the reason that these vaccines exist. But he stops short of telling people to go out and get them, because at the end of the day, there's that faction of the Republican base that still sits underneath Donald Trump that is kind of anti-government, anti-government telling them what to do, and at the same time, also anti-vaccine. So Donald Trump understands that he needs these people in his corner, despite the fact that he wants to take the credit and the glory for all of the vaccine process in this country. But they must be smart enough to know, Reggie, that Donald Trump did get one. How would they feel about that? Well, I mean, or do they, do they care as long? Do they, sorry, do they care as long as it's his choice? Well, and again, this goes back to the fact that Trump didn't even come out and say uh, that he had the vaccine when he was in office. We're still unclear when the, what the timing of that vaccine was. Uh, you know, it was it, this was a president who downplayed the, the severity of the virus that he himself contracted. I mean, look, I was standing outside 
of Walter Reed Medical Center in Bethesda, Maryland, when Donald Trump was a patient inside receiving uh, kind of experimental treatments like these monoclonal antibodies. Uh, and he wasn't coming forward to talk about the severity of the virus, much like he's not coming forward to say how great this vaccine is that can save you. All he wants to talk about uh, is the fact that the glory of the vaccine in this country is from him and then leave it up to whatever uh, to, to kind of the people in the base to make up their own minds about what they want to do. Is, uh, you know, uh, for a lot of Americans, this was behind them. Is that the case? What do you anticipate we'll see? And you can't look into a crystal ball here. I know that. But uh, are things are things changing in the U.S. by the by the time, say, fall rolls around? Uh, well, I mean, look, they, they could be changing in the fact that things move backwards. I was talking to an epidemiologist yesterday who is concerned about this, the sheer number uh, of cases that are going up that are appearing to double now uh, by the week. And that really could do, uh, undo the progress that this country has made uh, with being able to pull back some uh, of its mitigation tactics like masks and has been able to kind of shut down the mass vaccination sites and bring the uh, the, the vaccines into to clinics and, and, and into pharmacies. Uh, but there's a concern here that these these kind of isolated pockets are really going to drive problems across the United States. And you could start to see state after state after state uh, increase their case numbers by more than 10 percent where some of them are right now. Uh, and, you know, that takes it right back to the beginning. There is a push within the Democratic Party, within the Republican Party to get the border reopened into Canada. But if case numbers increase as much as they do, there is a fear uh, that things could go wrong. Are Canadians going to want infected Americans now crossing back into the you know, Canadian side of the border and potentially reversing the success there? That is stuff that's weighing not only on the prime minister's mind, on the president's mind, and on these working groups that Washington has put together to figure out how to get the borders back open. Reggie Cicchini with us, Washington correspondent for Global News. Make sure you're watching Global News tonight for more on all of this. Reggie, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. All right, lots of pressure uh, uh, to reopen the border between the United States and Canada. It's very bizarre. When we started this, um, you know, uh, smug Canadians didn't want those Americans in. They're all infected. And then, of course, uh, the tables turned, and they kicked into their vaccine uh, program, and they took off. And uh, then I'm not sure many Americans wanted us Canadians coming down there. And now it seems to be turning around again as Canada continues to vaccinate and the U.S., uh, their effort wanes uh, a little bit. And where does it put the discussion of opening the borders? Let's bring in Thomas Tenkate, professor of school of occupational health and public health and sorry, occupational and public health, Ryerson University, and is with us now. Tom, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Yeah, going well. Thanks, Scott. Thank you very much. How concerned are you with what we're seeing, not only in the United States, but other parts of the world with cases starting to go up when the world seemed to be making some progress here? Mm. Yeah, definitely the, uh, you know, across the around all of the countries around the world, we're really seeing the uh, trend that was going down is now starting to go back up again. And, uh, you know, that's that's a combination of uh, whatever the local vaccination rate is plus the sort of pressures, political pressures for re- relaxing the prevention measures co- in combination with the new variants that are, are more easily transmissible. So so it is uh, it is concerning and uh, I think that sort of is a is a you know gives us uh, time for pausing to sort of say, well, you know, how quickly and should we we reopen and, and relax relax our own uh, 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 measures at, uh, here, you know, here at home, and and I know there's a lot of pressure on, you know, uh, all of the provinces, and you know, some provinces have really uh, opened up quite a lot, and uh, and uh, Ontario is, you know, moving moving forward again uh, this week, this Friday, but uh, it is uh, it is a bit of a cautionary thing to sort of see what's happening overseas. Does the, all of this matter as long as our vaccine rates continue to accelerate? I mean, I, I think we—I don't know where we stand in the in the rest of the world as far as uh, participation in the vaccination program, but it certainly seems seems like Canadians are buying in. Certainly, the vast majority of them. There is hesitancy out there, of course. Does this all matter as long as we're vaccinated? Yeah, I think uh, yeah, I agree that uh, you know vaccination is and and having a high vaccination rate is is really the key for all of this, and and so we're really in that sort of transition phase from from you know moving up the from the low vaccination rate up to the rate that we really need to be at. So so we're sort of in the sort of sort of say for for uh, 
fully vaccinated, you know, in the sort of 50% range or so, de- depending on where you are in the in the country here. Uh, but, uh, you know, in other countries that are seeing a surge uh, are also in, the, in that range as well. And so it really means that until we can get up to in sort of the 70, high 70, 70% range, we're we're really going to be at a at a bit of a tipping point for the for the uh, for the for the variants that variants of concern the Delta and the Lambda ones because of because of how how they can be transmitted and so we've and and until we can really tip that the scales of of the proportion of the population being you know vaccinated versus unvaccinated we're, we're going to be in that in that period where where uh, we've got you know a, a, a a larger proportion of the a large proportion of the population at risk, and uh, and until we can drive that down, we we're going to be at be at uh, risk of of increasing increasing the numbers. So so definitely vaccination, long longer term, the vaccination uh, high vaccination rate is really the the key to to try and control this. Um, uh, obviously, uh, it, it seems the UK and the United States, uh, again, as we mentioned, it got to 50% quite quickly, uh, and then started to wane off. We're, we're like at 75 or over for the first dose. I think it's safe to say if they're getting the first, they're going to probably get the second. So we're going to be in a, in a, uh, in quite a good situation once those second doses, uh, get in. Will, will the fact that those other countries can't get that high, will, how will that affect things, including border travel? Yeah, definitely. It, it's, it's an interesting question and, uh, you know, hi- highlights the fact that, that, uh, the pandemic is a global, global issue. And, uh, definitely from a, from a travel perspective, if you've got countries that, uh, have, have ongoing, uh, sort of high numbers of cases and, and, uh, aren't able to get Unable to manage it by increasing the vaccination rate, it's really going to put a lot of pressure on uh, Canada. If if we if we are we reach that the you know the the the, the vaccination rates that we're looking for, uh, and then and if other countries aren't, what what does that mean for people from those countries coming here, and also for for Canadians going there? And uh, it is it is. Uh, it's not an easy question, and and I know that it's putting uh, you know a lot of uh, pressure on on uh, you know the government in regard to the bo- opening the border, particularly with the US, and and I think uh, you know there's there's two aspects. One aspect is at, at an individual level, as in someone who is if someone's fully vaccinated, what does it mean for them in regard to travel, but also what does it mean for the community in regard to the overall vaccine rate vaccination rate in the community. Uh, what about uh, vaccine passports? They're talking about them at the federal level. You can obviously see that for international travel, but if you have them at the federal level, do you need them at the provincial level? Mm, yeah, you you would you would hope hope not. Uh, it, whereas uh, you know, definitely at a at a at a national level and particularly international travel, it, it is going to be a bit more of a complicated issue because different countries have approved different vaccines, and so then the question is, you know, do does do Say, does Canada accept someone who's been vaccinated with a vaccine that isn't approved in Canada? So, so that's that's you know that's that's a more complicated situation. But uh, I think you know it it does you know sort of indicate that it that the need for sort of global uh, coordination of, of activities and and uh, and and even if you know we do really well here as as we are, and, and I think that. You know the public need to be congratulated on on how they've really embraced uh, the vaccination program. Uh, if if uh, other countries aren't able to manage and and uh, get get the uh, the infection under control in their own in their own country, it will have uh, flow on effects to Canada. Thomas Tenkate with us, professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health, Ryerson University, talking about rising cases around the world and passports here. Thomas, always thanks for the time. Be well. Yeah, thanks very much, Scott. Really appreciate it. Have a great day. Here is today's Daily Commentary. It is pretty clear the federal Liberals are planning a fall election. Although dodging the question, as he does, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has been making almost daily announcements, handing out our money wherever he goes and making more promises. Many of them simple retreads of past promises not kept. His promise of a $10 daycare in New Brunswick and B.C. is a good example plus a wind turbine factory expansion in Quebec. 
This is when Justin Trudeau is at his best, handing out our money in front of the cameras while not having to answer to opposition and justify his actions, let alone how much it will cost us. Kind of like opening night at the theater. And most importantly, when at a media conference, when Justin Trudeau delivers lines like, and I quote, in a feminist government in what needs to be a feminist recovery, end quote, you know something's up. I guess we can ask the Jody Wilson-Raybolds and Jane Philpotts of the world what a feminist government is all about, but a feminist recovery? If Justin Trudeau put as much effort into the real politics of the job as he does his image, his performances, or being a wordsmith, think of where Canada would be. Perhaps fully vaccinated and fully open months ago. I'm Scott Thompson. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. uh, Interesting new column on the uh, Global Weds uh, website. uh, Military sexual misconduct class action suit claims are up 170% over the last six months alone, obviously due to uh, all the attention that this issue has been receiving. Let's bring in Amanda Connolly, journalist for Global News. She is with us now. Amanda, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Thank you for having me. I hope you're well as well. I've, I've been there with the technical difficulties before myself. <laughs> I know. Usually we're this far into it. We got this stuff figured out. But man, even a year and a half in, we're still we're still hitting the tops of the trees here. Uh, Amanda, this is uh, certainly not new, but something that has been picking up steam. Uh, talk about the recent surge in just the last six months. Is this due to the fact that this has been in the news and we it's been getting so much attention lately? So that really is the big question right now. Of course, that's the one that jumps to the front of a lot of people's minds. We have seen this significant spike, as you mentioned there, in the number of people who've come forward to uh, to apply to join the military sexual misconduct class action lawsuit. We're up to more than 7,300 individuals. Back in late December 2020, we were just over uh, 2,700 people who were applying to join that. This really is, again, a significant growth in the, the number of people here. And, and it's certainly coming, as you mentioned, as the military is facing this reckoning, kind of an institutional crisis, as experts call it, over allegations of high-level sexual misconduct within the ranks. It is difficult, though, to say right now, again, with any kind of certainty, whether that is the factor driving this. We did see that spike starting back in late December, and it's really accelerated since then. I spoke with a number of experts um, earlier earlier in the week who were saying that uh, the, the, the numbers here certainly seem to suggest that people are feeling safer, they're feeling like they can come forward here, uh, they're feeling less alone, which could be part of this. But again, um, whether that is this lawsuit began in 2019, uh, whether it's kind of looking specifically at the reporting that's been coming out right now, as opposed to that broader community and things like that is, is difficult to say right now. Uh, as these stories have, have hit the news in the last several weeks, uh, obviously there was pressure for something to be done. Many were asking for the resignation of the defense minister. Uh, the prime minister said uh, another report, even though there was one uh, issued in, in 2015, uh, another report which you know pretty much pushes this beyond uh, the next election. Do you think headlines like this bring this back into the forefront? Is this, will this be pushed off till past the, the next election? I mean, that really is, again, one, one of the big questions. We don't know uh, when that next election will be. It's certainly looking more and more likely like it could be late summer, kind of early fall. But again, a, a lot still to be confirmed um, on, on that potential timeline. All we have are whispers right now. But um, I mean, I, it, it's, it's really the... It's, it's difficult to say kind of what the, the clear impact here will be. We've certainly heard from the government that they, um, they plan to, to be acting as soon as any interim reports from that independent external review are made. We don't know when those could come, though. We don't know kind of what the threshold is or when um, Madame Louise Arbour, the former Supreme Court Justice who is leading that review, will be making any of those recommendations that could lead to further systemic changes or or really kind of spur that on here. What we do know, though, is that the the military class action lawsuit for for people who've experienced sexual misconduct is open until uh, the end of November. So we still have four more months for individuals to come forward and potentially put forward their their claims to this process. One of the concerns, though, that we're hearing is that the, the process itself is very traumatic, is very difficult for survivors and victims who, of course, have been through um, just such difficult uh, difficult circumstances and experiences to, to now um, be, be facing some of the challenges that some are saying they're seeing in this process. 
Uh, any com- uh, comment from officials or government on on this story and the fact that 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 uh, the reporting of these misconduct cases has gone up so drastically in the last six months alone? Yeah, certainly. Um, I did reach out to Defence Minister Harjit Sajan's office uh, earlier in the week again, talking about uh, what, what is he going to do here? Is there anything that we can do to to try and address what survivors and victims are saying they need, which is really a more compassionate, trauma-informed system? For example, things like getting a heads up when there's going to be a decision being made um, on their claim, just that time to kind of prepare themselves emotionally, to take time off work if they need to. Um, again, a lot of people here who've been dealing with, with trauma from from their experiences, uh, we didn't really get a, a lot of clear answers from that. The government saying that, of course, the needs of survivors and victims need to be um, need to be at the forefront of this. That the minister has uh, instructed officials to to work with the administrator and the lawyers representing the claimants here to make sure that the process is is meeting the, the needs of those who are coming forward. Um, but what that looks like and kind of what what clear change here could come is is not yet clear. Will this or stories like this uh, increase the pressure on the defense minister to step aside or be replaced? You know, it's it's a tricky question because at this point, I'm, I'm to be to be frank, I'm, I'm not clear. I'm not sure how much more pressure could be applied hmm. um, to to lead to that result. We have seen again, like we've the defense minister has been censored uh, censured in the House of Commons. Uh, there have been repeated calls for months now for him to either step aside or be removed from his position, both from people who are in the defense industry as well, more recently from the political opposition from Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole. Uh, this really has come from a, a very wide range of avenues here and it, it, there has um, been very little apart from defense of both uh, his his performance and the confidence that the prime minister says he has in the minister to do this job so again it's I'm, I'm not really sure what else would would need to happen to kind of meet that threshold or prompt that result right now but it certainly seems clear that they're they're not looking at that option as a serious consideration at the moment Amanda Connolly with us, journalist for Global News. Military sexual misconduct class action suit claims up 170% over the last six months. You can find it on the Global website. Make sure you're watching tonight. Amanda, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you. You as well. Let's bring in Danielle Ballon, James McGill, professor of political science and director of the McGill Institute for the Study of Canada with McGill University and with us now. Danielle, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I'm doing well. Thanks for the invitation. Uh, why do you think we're having this discussion now? Why do you think there is more chatter about this? Is this because it's in the news now and, and people are feeling comfortable enough to come forward? Well, I think that we, we've seen in the aftermath of the Me Too movement, and that's not just uh, within the, the Canadian Armed Forces, but uh, in other areas of Canadian society and, and beyond in other countries, that uh, people, although it's still difficult for them to, to come forward, um, uh, in in the case of uh, sexual misconduct, um, it, it's it, it's it's becoming more common now, and and people um, are getting more organized around this. And so I think that um, certainly the social media have also I think created an environment where uh, these allegations now circulate really quickly, and and people are more aware of them than than before. So in addition to the uh, social media, of course, the, the traditional media uh, is also playing a role, uh, so raising awareness about this. Um, but it's it's part of a broader movement. I don't think it's just about Canada. It's it's really uh, at least in uh, in Western countries something that has been going on for a number of years now. Uh, so obviously, um, as you mentioned, and as uh, Amanda was pointing out, it has been a movement that have slowly, uh, mo- uh, slowly increased. Uh, are, are people reluctant to step forward because of repercussions? Does the fact that this is in the news now make them feel more comfortable? Well, you know, it's never easy, right, yeah. to do this. Uh, to report um, uh, sexual misconduct. Uh, so I don't think it has become, you know, uh, that much easier than before, but it, it certainly, um, people feel that they are no longer alone, right? They feel that, because you hear about all these reports and say, well, you know, it happened to me, it happened to other people, and so you realize it's part of a bigger problem, and there's a sense um, uh, and that's the thing uh, with Me Too, that it's really a social movement. 
so that it's, it's really about collective action, right? So it's the idea that you're not alone, you're not isolated, uh, you can, you, you know, uh, you can join a, a class uh, action, you, you can uh, be part of a networks on social media and beyond to change things. So I think it's the sense of, in a way, of collective empowerment that comes with the knowledge that many other people are in the same situation as you. We remember uh, in the last several weeks as we've been dealing with more of this, especially in the hierarchy of the military, the prime minister uh, instituted another report, even though there was just one revealed in 2015 on this exact same issue. Can this all be put off until that report comes out and until past the next election when we see numbers like this? And, and obviously there's you know increased, ish, uh, increased interest in this issue. Yeah, well, the liberals will, will certainly love that to happen, but I don't think uh, this will be the case. You mentioned this report by, alluded to the report by Marie Deschamps. That's from, you know, spring, March of 2015, uh, so uh, more than six years ago. And, and some of the recommendations from that report have not been implemented yet. And we have had other reports uh, dealing with this issue much more recently. There was a report by another former uh, justice, because Marie Deschamps was a justice too, uh, Maurice Fish, and there's a chapter on sexual misconduct um, in the Canadian Armed Forces, and it's also uh, 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 depicting all sorts of problems and issues, and the report has more than 100 recommendations. That came out uh, um, earlier uh, this year, in the, in the late spring, um, and so... Uh, and it has been documented by the media as well. So um, uh, lots of recommendations, lots of ideas, but obviously uh, still a lot of work to do. Uh, many are saying that uh, we're readying for a federal election, uh, lots of things being handed out um, and, and programs, campaigning starting and such. I was watching one yesterday um, uh, out on the East uh, Coast and, uh, I, I'm not. I'm not giving you the quote exact, but um, paraphrasing here, uh, the prime minister said uh, it's a feminist government, and, and it will require a. This will require a feminist recovery. Um, obviously, we know what he's focusing on and why he's trying to do that. He's he, he, there's an election coming. Can you keep saying things like that? when these headlines are are making the rounds about claims being up 170 percent just in the last six months alone? No, I think that this is uh, this is very difficult. This is a contradiction, obviously, between the rhetoric and reality as far as we deal with the situation in the uh, the the CAF, the Kenyan Armed Forces. So uh, I think that this is a problem for for the government uh, and especially for Minister Sajan. And the fact that he's still uh, in post, frankly, is is uh, quite uh, mind-boggling for people. I'm not the only one to think that. Uh, there is a principle of ministerial responsibility in our parliamentary system, and I frankly think that uh, um, on this file at least, uh, the minister has not delivered. It's not only his fault, but you know, uh, when things don't work, uh, um, the minister has to take responsibility, and resigning uh, will probably be the best option, but of course, uh, uh, this is something that's unlikely to happen, especially if we uh, the liberals think that, you know, we'll have uh, elections very soon and they want to pull the trigger on that. Um, a cabinet shuffle will also be uh, a possibility. But again, that uh, will likely to happen only uh, after federal elections if we have uh, any this year. So you don't think that these uh, the latest uh, these class action suits rising the, the way they have in the last six months, that's not going to put any extra pressure on the defense minister to resign or or be replaced? Well, uh, you know, as the, 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 your colleague from Global said earlier, the pressure has been on for years, uh, <laughs> and especially in the last month. Uh, you know, the ombudsman also, uh, uh, you know, the so-called military watchdog came out swinging uh, uh, about the, the fact that, you know, he, he, he just uh, doesn't have enough, enough power, that we need more stronger uh, civilian oversight over the military, and that's very recent. So there are a lot of things. Um, that have been said recently, published, uh, that, that really have increased the pressure on the minister and on, 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 on the Canadian Armed Forces, and yet progress has been very slow, to say the least. Does this issue resonate with Canadians? Well, I think it does, because, especially because the government is emphasizing gender equality and its feminist credentials. 
so uh, when people can 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 sense that there's a tension here between the rhetoric uh, um, of the government of the prime minister and and what they have delivered regarding that specific file. So I, I do think that it, it's an issue that uh, many Canadians worry about. It's not a top of mind issue like say the economy or healthcare or, or climate change. Um, but it's still, I think, uh, um, uh, an issue that, that's significant, in part because it, 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 it relates to other, uh, I think, broader values and themes like, like uh, discrimination uh, um, and, and gender equality. And these are themes that are really uh, uh, central to, uh, to political debates and, 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 frankly, also to the, the liberal brand about this idea of, uh, you know, a feminist government and so forth. Danielle Beland uh, with us, uh, James McGill, Professor of Political Science and Director of the McGill Institute for the Study of Canada. Danielle, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. You're most welcome. Be well. Take care. One day I have to tell you um, about my time in Calgary during the Winter Olympics, and we got into the uh, torch parade and almost uh, right behind the torch, uh, walked into the Olympic Stadium before security pulled us aside. Let me tell you a story one day, maybe during the Olympics when it starts next week. All right, let's move on. Um, obviously, the Olympics in uh, Tokyo, after being postponed, are going ahead next week. Lots of chatter uh, about whether it's the right thing to do or not. Athletes there, uh, no spectators. It'll be very different from what we have seen in the past. Let's bring in Peter Donnelly, professor with the fa- uh, Faculty of Kinesiology and Physical Education, University of Toronto, and is with us now. Peter, Thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Hello. So, Peter, how will this game, I mean, games be different? Obviously, there's no spectators, but let's dig down a bit deeper in that. What, what, what does that mean? What does that uh, mean to both athletes and, and everybody involved? Um, well, this is going to be an Olympics like no other, and uh, I think uh, there are a few athletes who will have had some experience Um qualifying in front of empty stadiums but uh it's uh it, it it's new territory for everybody this, this olympics uh nobody has ever organized uh an event this large and complex in the middle of a pandemic uh what about let's talk specifically about this how this affects uh the athletes um you know from what i've i've seen over the years with performance training and such it's about getting into that zone it's about zoning out everything else whether it's the crowd or your competitors or or whoever uh you know finding that 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 space that you need to perform at your best is the crowd that much of a factor to the athlete um it is for some uh but uh the the conditions are going to be the same for everybody so everybody is mm. uh competing without a crowd it's not uh it's not an uneven playing field for them it's just a different playing field for them what about the actual olympic experience for the athletes we hear that they are uh, from what i understand they have to be out about 48 hours after their event is complete uh many who i've talked to in the past enjoyed hanging out afterwards and 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 taking part in the games what about the experience itself how will that be different for the athlete it will be it will be completely different uh they're supposed to isolate they're not supposed to hug or high five uh their competitors or their friends or anybody, they are, uh, uh, I just heard the conditions for the medal ceremonies today. The, uh, the athletes will have to, the winning athletes will have to take, uh, the medal off a tray and put it around their own neck. Really? Uh, yeah. It's, uh, I mean, it's just going to be, uh, very, very different. I think it's disturbing that they have to, uh, uh, be out of the Olympic village, but by 48 hours, there are not all that many flights. Uh, and so, you know, their, uh, the organizers or their own, uh, sport organizations will have to probably arrange some other accommodation in, in Tokyo until, until they can, uh, um, get a flight out. So, uh, so I think it's, it's just very strange circumstances. I mean, this is just going to be a, a made for television event. Um, and, uh, and it's just not going to be like any other Olympics. I was, uh, you said you were in Calgary. I was, uh, I was at, uh, the first week of the, uh, Sydney Olympics in 2000. Mm. And 
it's unbelievable being in an Olympic city. You know, there, yeah. there are parties everywhere. You know where the athletes from each country is going to be. They hang out at a particular bar. At, at the, the, the Canadian athletes hang out at Canada House. Um, and all of that, all of that is gone for this Olympics. So it's going to be a competitive experience, but uh, not going to have any of the the other of the other social experiences that go with the Olympics. You know, I, I got goosebumps, Peter, there when you were talking about your experience in Sydney, because again, it, it it really is an incredible experience to be there as a spectator and, and just absorb the whole thing uh, over and above uh, the events. Um, is it safe? Are you, how concerned are you for the safety of the athlete? Is it safe to say that everybody involves fully vaccinated? No, it's not. <laughs> um, yeah, I, it's. Uh, there's no obligation. I mean, I think the majority of athletes will be fully vaccinated, but there are still some some holdouts. Uh, some athletes are withdrawing. I don't know how many withdrawals there will be, but uh, I think we've heard recently about quite a few top tennis players uh, who have withdrawn from this. Um, uh, some countries have withdrawn. North Korea is not sending uh any athletes because uh, they're concerned uh, you know it's a it's a very isolated con- country so you know if somebody came back with the virus that would uh, uh, change everything for the country I think Samoa Samoa in the South Pacific is also uh, not sending any athletes who are resident in Samoa because again it's isolated if anybody brings in the virus that's you know that's really difficult for uh, for them. So I think it. You know, it's uh, people are clearly nervous, uh, and you know, uh, I'm sure once they get into the frame of mind of competition, it's going to be uh, okay for the athletes. But uh, you know, it's it's not ideal circumstances by any means. What about the conditions in Tokyo today? Uh, continue to uh, obviously be a great concern. Um, do you see something developing within these games uh, before they're even over? Yeah. <laughs> I, I, like all of a sudden, like a whole swack of athletes start testing positive or something like that of that nature. Yeah, I think some have tested positive and they are, are withdrawing in advance. Yeah. Um, I think everybody who gets there will have to do a, a short-term quarantine. Um, uh, I don't know how they manage to continue their training in that. Maybe they have the, uh, the athletes village isolated enough and facilities there that they can be in a kind of quarantine and, and continue to train. But, uh, whether this will be a, a super spreader event, um, who knows? I mean, there are going to be media there from all over the world. There are going to be uh, sport uh, uh, sport organization leaders from all over the world, um, and judges, referees, uh, uh, and and coaches and and support staff like medical staff and sports psychologists and physiotherapists, all of those kind of people. So. You know, there's a load of people, 11,000 athletes or over 11,000 athletes, plus at least uh, another 50,000 plus will be going there. Um, well, you know, I guess at any time there's mixed uh, reaction to a host city hosting the game. Some people are just ecstatic. Other people think it's a, a complete waste of time, and that's not even during a pandemic. Uh, we understand that Japanese are still uh, not happy that, that this is going forward. What about the reception from Japanese? Or is that irrelevant because there's no fans in the facilities? There's no contact. Yeah, it will, it will probably be irrelevant. Um, I, they're not even sure how many volunteers they will have because uh, I think 10,000 volunteers. I think they had 110,000 uh, originally scheduled, um, and so that would have been the most direct contact um, athletes would have had with uh, Japanese people. Um, 8,000 8, of those were uh, international volunteers, and so they have been kept out 10,000 uh, have already dropped out because of the uh, uh, you know the new uh, uh, crisis that has been declared there and who knows how many more so uh, so I think it's going to be a struggle there are going to be all kinds of unexpected things that will happen in in the next three weeks um, 
and I think it's uh, <laughs> it's going to be gripping to watch, and I just hope everybody is safe. You, you know, I, I completely forgot about the volunteer aspect of this, Peter, and I remember being in Calgary during that time, and that was quite a coveted position. Uh, I remember there was tons of Calgarians, way more than they needed, applied to help out and be volunteers. You got a great uh, ski suit if you did, and, and, and all of these benefits and such, uh, although you were a volunteer. But I remember uh, them holding a lottery for volunteers to uh, to be a part of this, and that's gone, or certainly a huge, huge portion of it. Well, I mean, it, it's got the volunteers. There will be volunteers there. Yeah. But, uh, you know, they uh, I, they know that there are going to be some uh, uh, some seats, uh, some people in seats in the stadium. Uh, the sport uh, officials from uh, all of the different countries. You know, the organization. Uh, uh, heads uh, probably some seats for the top sponsors uh, um, of the Olympics and uh, you know the entourages that go with with them and possibly they will uh, they'll let some volunteers in when they're when they're not on their shift. But what about athletes, Peter? Will other athletes better be able to go into other venues and cheer on their fellow athletes or see any portion of this? Will they be allowed in the stands? You no, know, I don't know that. Uh, I hope so. Um, to, you know, in events like track and field and swimming, um, athletes uh, oh, love to cheer on their teammates. Yeah. Um, and I don't know. I don't know what will happen. It'll be interesting to see what does happen there, especially if uh, teams are fully vaccinated. It would appear, you know, but I I can certainly see that being a logistical nightmare. Uh, What do you think this is going to look like on TV? I mean, some, you know, we watch if you watch the Olympics for the duration of the events, not every event is filled to the max. What do you think we're going to see? Are we going to see anything different? Yeah, the crowd shots won't be there, Uh, but we've got. I think we've got a bit used to that in the last year or so. Watching sports events where the camera stays uh, stays low and stays on the field of action rather than uh, uh, scanning the uh, the empty seats. Um, So I think there will be uh, there'll be that kind of uh, production uh, of the events. Um, So. It, it nevertheless, look the same, yeah. nevertheless uh, of COVID-19, whatever's happening here, is there still the interest in the rest of the world? Will the rest of the world still want to watch this competition? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I think uh, uh, NBC is trying to hype it up uh, in the United States, saying that uh, this is going to be the most meaningful Olympics. CBC and TSN have been... Uh, 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 promoting it for a year now, uh, more than a year now. So uh, it's uh, it's difficult. I think people generally do get interested in the Olympics, um, and so I, I, I'm not sure whether they'll break any records. Uh, and countries that are in crisis uh, uh, at this time, um, you know, they may be a lot less interested in that and more, much more interested in in public health. Uh, we usually see two family and friends of athletes may go over and participate and watch and, and, and take in the events and such. Uh, is that more difficult for the athlete knowing they're all alone or is it the same for every, because it's the same for everybody, you know, no gain here, no foul. Well, I think athletes who've been before, uh, will find it different, you know, who had family and friends there before. Um, mm. many of the athletes will be first time at, at the Olympics, uh, uh, and they wouldn't have always had uh, family and friends at the events they've been at. So, uh, but again, I think you know the 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 good thing is that it's the same for everybody. Peter Donnelly has been with us, professor with the Faculty of Kinesiology and Physical Education, University of Toronto, talking about how the Olympics will look different uh, as Tokyo readies to uh, open the doors, well, at least to the athletes, coming up uh, next week. Peter, thanks for the time and insight. Be well. Thanks, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening. Thanks, everyone. I just want one last story. Oh.
so I will tell the story about getting into the Olympics. So uh, this was back in 1988 in Calgary, the Winter Olympics. I was there from 86 to 89. I was working at a radio station there. Uh, which was the only reason I was there. And when someone said to me, hey, you're going to be there for the Olympics, I must be honest, I really, did, I, I didn't care. It just, I was all about the job at that time as being a young man. So when I get out there, though, and if you've ever been in Olympic City, the buzz starts like a year and a half ahead of time. So all of the festivities leading up to the Olympics were just absolutely incredible, let alone the Olympics itself. So I, I, I just have nothing but great, great, great fond memories of the city and my time there and, and the Olympics. So Anyway, as you know, they have the big uh, torch parade, which goes ac- around the world and whatever, and then it eventually, uh, you know, lands in Calgary and runs across uh, or uh, lands uh, gets to Alberta, and, and people are running it across the country and all these small towns and whatever. And then, as the Olympics start for the opening ceremonies, it comes into town. And I remember it was coming in from Banff, <laughs> and uh, this is the parade, which is basically the torch runner and all the support staff and a lot of pomp and circumstance. Uh, they march into the stadium, run into the stadium, and go up the stairs and light the torch, and everybody goes ecstatic. So uh, we had a very uh, innovative promotions person and salesperson at the time, and it was a hit radio station, so uh, we were certainly into that. And we had one of those giant radios, like CHML used to have uh, way back in the day that you could broadcast from. Uh, boy, we'd need that during a pandemic now, wouldn't we? So uh, anyway, uh, we, there was no shortage of vehicles that marked with our call letters and all that stuff. And uh, we parked just outside of Calgary uh, on the Trans-Canada uh, waiting for the parade to come. And as the parade came by, I, I, I don't know how they did it. Uh, we got two vehicles into the parade right behind the torch runner. Uh, there was one more small uh, support vehicle there, and then us. And then a whole pile of people behind us. Uh, and and I, I, I'm not sure how these people weaseled it or how we, I was just along for the ride, so to speak. So we literally went all the way through town, right behind the runner, uh, and, and people lining the streets everywhere. And then it, we got into McMahon Stadium. And uh, we're thinking, oh, man, there's no way that, you know, like, can you imagine? Because we knew our boss was in there at the opening ceremonies. Can you imagine if we have the opening ceremonies and we get the giant radio in there? <laughs> I mean, he'll freak out. So we're always joking about that. And sure, because like, we were expecting to get kicked out of the parade at any time. We made it all the way in. We're into the stampede grounds. We're at McMahon Stadium. They open the doors. I, I'll never forget this. We can see the crowd in the stadium, and the torch starts going in. As soon as we get to the gates, as soon as we get to the gates, some security people with ear things in their heads and 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 uh, and, and clipboards. Whoa, 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 whoa! So literally, and they said they could see us from the stadium, like getting shoved off because it was right at the front gate. Uh, they take us out of the parade, and then they squeeze it all together, and they march into the stadium. So we made it all the way through uh, town, all the way right into the stampede grounds, and right up to the gates of McMahon Stadium, almost, like literally 50 meters from getting into the actual stadium before we were pulled away. And the only reason we were caught was because on the giant boombox radio was a Pepsi logo and Coca-Cola was the sponsor of the games. So it wasn't security that pulled us out. It was the sponsor. Uh, otherwise, we'd been on TV with everyone else. All right, that's my uh, Olympic torch story. There you go. I think I get a gold medal for that. You think the, the cheese slipped off the cracker with these people?